This is Inspired by Example, a podcast about purpose, passion, and pivotal moments that can change the course of a life of meaning. I'm Rich Price. And I'm Will Price. In this series, my brother and I speak with leaders and innovators, people who, through their work and ways of working, have inspired us and countless others. We hope that after today's conversation, you'll feel inspired by example. All right, Will, the idea with this podcast is that we get to talk to remarkable people who've done remarkable things with courage, purpose, curiosity, character, and through our conversations, maybe reveal certain lessons that can be examples to follow. Our guest today is David Coulter, a special limited partner of the private equity firm Warburg Pincus. David's remarkable career includes positions of leadership at some of the world's most iconic financial institutions, including Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase. Here's our 50,000-foot view of our guest, David Coulter. David was born in Ford City, Pennsylvania, which I had to admit I looked up. It's on the Allegheny River, about 40 miles northeast of Pittsburgh. In fact, For college, David would travel those 40 miles to attend Carnegie Mellon University. In the late 90s, David served as the chairman and CEO of Bank of America. He was also a partner in the investment firm, The Beacon Group, and later vice chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase. Beginning in 2005, David was vice chairman and managing director of Warburg Pincus. He is or has been a board of director of a remarkable mix of organizations including Inovu, American Prairie Reserve, MasterCard International, Third Way, the Northern California Asia Society, Lincoln Center, to name just a few. And most recently, he serves as board chair of his alma mater, Carnegie Mellon. David is also an active supporter of American Advanced Manufacturing and owns and operates a high-end machine shop in Big Timber, Montana. David, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So David, as you know, we do these five chapters where we're going to ask you a series of questions. And the first one we talk about is leadership. Chapter one, leadership. Who are some of the leaders that have had a lasting impact on you? And what are some of the lessons and traits you've integrated and continue to lean on? Well, thanks, Will. As as Rich indicated, I, I grew up in a small town in Western Pennsylvania. To be truthful, I didn't have many examples of leadership, as I think back on it. Had a very supportive family. Uh, The Pittsburgh culture was hard work and no bullshit. That's kind of what I grew up with. But I have been lucky along the way, as I pursued my career, to meet a group of people who encouraged me, coached me, criticized me, and helped me move it forward. And I could probably go on a long time about several of those. But as I thought about the questions uh, well, I, I picked out a few, and uh, let, me, let me just say a little bit about each one of them and a little bit about their leadership style. Probably the first one was a guy named Mac McClown. When I met him, he was head of management science at Wells Fargo Bank. And Wells Fargo, under, really under Mac's leadership, uh, was inventing the first of the index funds with Fisher Black and Myron Trolls. And I had finished my bachelor's and master's at Carnegie Mellon was looking around for a job. And compared to today's world, it was probably the most unprofessional way of thinking about a job of, that you could imagine. I, 
I used to play a lot of tennis and every every week I'd buy Business Week, Fortune and Forbes and in between tennis games, I'd sit there flipping through them. And I read about the, these guys at Wells Fargo that were creating the first index fund. So I wrote them a letter. And as I said, unbelievably naive letter in retrospect. It said, uh, hey, I read about you guys in Business Week. What you're doing sounds pretty interesting. Here's a paragraph about me. And I need a job. Uh, and send them the letter. <laughs> and much to my surprise, two weeks later, I get a call from him. Hot, humid Pittsburgh day. And he said, would you be willing to come out and talk to us here at Wells? We I can't, I can't guarantee you a job, but uh, would you at least be willing to come? And I practically you know, screamed, are you kidding me? Um, so I went out and got to meet Mac, and he offered me a job in Los Angeles, which, which actually I didn't take, but we've stayed friends uh, ever since then. And Mac McClown turned out to be uh, a really out-of-the-box thinker, very curious. He's done a range of things beyond Wells Fargo, uh, He's a guy that's got such enthusiasm, he makes you feel smarter when you talk to him. And it, it's really a, a terrific style, and it's one I try to have when I'm talking to people, as opposed to thinking what's wrong with what they're saying. Mac was looking for the, the upside and the bright side. And so, as I said, I've stayed, I've stayed friends with him for a long time, hasn't changed at all. But he was the first really corporate character that I ever met. And, you know, I assumed everybody was like him, but obviously they're not. So that, that was the first one. The second, probably biggest leader for me was Tom Clausen, who was the CEO of Bank of America when I first joined. Tom Clausen was a hard-ass, typical, old-fashioned CEO. He also had a global perspective. He, he, he had moved Bank of America strongly into the international sphere. I got to know him a little bit because I was in the financial analytics group and we'd get to give a lot of presentations to the executive committee. And I, I would take those, every one of those presentations to try to draw, draw some crazy diagram and say, here's the way I'd run B of A. You know, we're going in exactly the wrong direction. And everybody would look at, look at me like I was crazy. But Tom ultimately picked me to be his assistant. And in those days, his assistant was kind of the homework person that looked at all the analytical stuff that was coming in and tried to handle it and tried to summarize it. And, uh, you know, in, in those days, I thought I was on my way to fame and stardom. And I can always remember the first day I worked for my economics department had set up an interest rate forecast. And I, I tried to explain to them that the term structure of interest rates was much different than that forecast. And he ended up telling me he thought this was the totally dumbest ass presentation he'd ever seen. So... <laughs> You know, you, you had to go back and, and start all over again and try to, to defend yourself every day. But it, it gave me an opportunity to see firsthand what a CEO job's all about. Granted, it was from an old school CEO, but it gave me a sense of what it takes to be CEO. And for Tom, it was 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He actually ultimately was probably the guy that was responsible for me becoming CEO of Bank of America. So that's the second one. The third one is a guy you also probably know, Dan Case, who was the CEO of Hambrack and Quist. I knew Dan because we, we were in um, San Francisco together. I thought he was one of the smartest guys I'd ever come across, very dynamic, very aggressive in thinking about future strategy. And uh, I had something bad happen to me career-wise in San Francisco, which we could talk about a little later, but I'll always remember 
that the first day it hit the press and I was driving to work and kind of dreading what was to happen. And I get a phone call from Dan and without any prelude, he said, uh, hey, I'd like you to join my board. And, you know, I said, Dan, uh, I know why you're making this call and I know what you're trying to do, but you don't have to do that. Uh, you don't you don't even know the circumstances fully. And he said, I don't have to know the circumstances. I know you and I want you to join the board. So, you know, that that was also a good lesson of in the midst of all the, you know, corporate positioning people do. Somebody knew me as a person, stepped back and took a step to help me out. I think that was a very good lesson. I view Dan as a leader. He's obviously passed away, but I thought that was a very good lesson to keep in mind going forward. And the final one I'd cite is, is a recent one. As Rich pointed out, I became chairman of the board of trustees at Carnegie Mellon. I wasn't running for that job, but I got, I got uh, kind of pushed into it. I kept saying there has to be somebody younger and better than me. But in retrospect, I'm glad I did it. The president of Carnegie Mellon is a person named Farnam Jahanian. Came to the U.S. from Iran as a as a, a young child, a computer scientist, started some companies, was at University of Michigan for a long time. He is perfect built for this job, given computer science and robotics and all the important parts of the brand at Carnegie Mellon. But universities are much different than corporates in terms of how boards function and how management teams function. About you know, the president is is obviously the leader, but there's some things you can and cannot do with the faculty. And it's been really good to observe Farnham and see how he handles that different set of decisions and different set of audiences he has to handle. And he did something recently that I think was a great example of leadership. With the obvious issues going on in Israel and Gaza, I'm sure you both have seen in the news lots of uh, issues about what's happening on campus and our leaders speaking out. And that's true at Carnegie Mellon. And so soon after the conflict exploded, Farnham gave a statement to the community, the broad community, that uh, he was very much against terrorism. But he had kind of urged understanding on all sides because there were Israeli students, Palestinian students in, in Pittsburgh and around the world. And Pittsburgh also had a terrible anti-Jewish event uh, in, in a synagogue there. Um, there's a fence that runs through the middle of campus and it's controlled by the students over a hundred, this over a hundred years and they paint messages on the fence, but once again, totally controlled by the students. Uh, there was a very disturbing message on it. Uh, Farnham met with student leadership, explained his position. Uh, they, they, of course, talked about free speech, etc., And he ultimately said to them, look, you guys are student leaders. You can't just, mouth theories. You've got to take a stand here. And it's a really inappropriate message, but you have to decide what to do with it. And they ended up painting, painting the fence over and putting the word compassion on it. And so he did that in a manner, you know, probably, I would have probably, uh, for my corporate days, probably <laughs> painted it myself, but, but he did it in a manner that demonstrated real leadership and sent a message to both the academic and the student community there. So those, those are just a number. As I said, I could go on about a lot of people I've come across, and, uh, and uh, I can't tell you how many have helped me along the way. Those four were fantastic, and especially the last one for them, just to, given the, the challenges that universities face now, trying to balance uh, the student body, the, the real-world politics, to, 
to allow the students to come to their own insights there and make that decision without mandating it is a great example of leadership. You're listening to Inspired by Example, brought to you by Inspire HQ, a SaaS platform designed to simplify how purpose-led organizations remain aligned. An ecosystem of AI-enabled tools in service of how progress really happens. Learn more at inspirehq.team. Chapter 2. Turning Point. Freddie talked a little bit about the letter you sent to Wells Fargo, but uh, are there other specific pivotal moments or turning points in your life that you look back and realize that that was a trigger point that led to a different outcome, a different impact on the course of your life and how you live it? The biggest turning point for me started out fairly negatively. I was running B of A as a relatively young CEO, kind of late 40s. We had had a lot of success in improving the uh, market cap of B of A simply because we were we were getting out of a bunch of things we shouldn't have been into, but at the same time trying to think about the future. And big banks sometimes go through these periods where everybody has an urge to merge or they feel a strategic need to merge. And so lots of, and as I said, those periods have been flow, but there was uh, lots of discussion going on in the mid 90s to late 90s. We certainly talked a lot about it as a management team. We talked a bit about it at the board. And one of our views is we had a very, very strong U.S. franchise. And while we had an interesting global franchise, we didn't feel it was strong enough. So our initial thought was we wanted to explore something with Citigroup and went down that path. And then it became clear City was going a different direction of merging with travelers. And as we thought about it a little more, uh, Nations Bank came up on our screen. And that was because as we thought strategically about our franchise, Nations Bank franchise. If we put those together domestically, we'd be the number one financial institution of 30 out of 35 of the key markets. We sort of said to ourselves, well, this positions us really well domestically. And if any international institution is interested in a broader uh, combination, it makes us a really viable partner. And so we went down that path. Lots of internal analysis, lots of discussion with the board. Ultimately, we crafted a deal with them. And as I say, even, even thinking back today, I think strategically, it was probably the right move. Although, just a side comment about this urge to merge. I think all too often management teams think there's one deal out there and I have to do it now because it will never, it'll never be here again. Well, I've learned there's always another deal somewhere out there. So you don't need to rush in a deal, into a deal just because you think nothing else is going to be on the horizon. But strategically, it was the right thing. But what I missed uh, was how different we were culturally. You know, when we negotiated the deal, I tried to lead the way in the fact that we didn't have to tie down 100 detailed things that this is why we were doing this. And this is why they were doing it. But it turns out that after we came together, that cultural misread became really evident. And it was clear they wanted to control everything. It was clear that in spite of balancing the, the management team, they thought all their people were much better. And so it ended up that it made sense for me to leave. So that, that was a real turning point for me and, um, and a real turning point for me personally, because 
as you both know, when you do these kind of transactions, first of all, lots of press about them. People have a range of different opinions. It does cause you when you walk out of there to say, well, did I do something wrong? And you had to you had to step back from that. My wife did something really nice for me, and I'm not sure she ever told me why she was doing it, but we had bought this painting. It was a figure blowing through a tumultuous period with a blindfold on it. There was a plaque with it saying, when you get to the edge of all the light you know and are about to step off into the darkness of the unknown, faith is knowing either you'll find something to stand on or you'll be taught how to fly. Mm. So, you know, I'd walk through this, past this painting a few times every day in the house and you had to decide, uh, was this going to kill you or were you going to move forward in a proactive way? Mm. So that was a gigantic turning point for me. Mm. Chapter three, lesson learned. How do you think you became a different person or what did you take away from that, that really challenging time that's helped you become the person you are in terms of integrating that, moving forward, but also the reflections that have come from it? The importance of culture. You're going to have a culture in a company, whether you work on it or not. So why not work on it? Why not try to make it the thing that's critical to the success of the company? And what I discovered is you can't do that with a one meeting or a everybody gets a baseball cap or something like that. It's something you have to do 100% of the time. There has to be a drumbeat about what you're doing, why you're doing it. People might not believe it, but you accomplish the first step and you say, see, we did it. And here's what we're going to do the second step. And, and as I said, I think I made a, a cultural mistake in that one. You know, I tried to do the right thing. I think people understood why I did it, although it didn't work out the way I wanted it to. Uh, it was, as I said, it was sort of the motto in that painting. There, I, I did find something to stand on. and I didn't have to learn to fly. But, you know, walking away from that, I think it, it just says uh, you can't judge a leader necessarily are they always successful. I think it becomes... It's great. You, you expect a really good leader to be successful at some point in time, but you got to see how they dealt with bad things too. And, uh, you know, I, I, I joked when I joined JP Morgan, I said, you know, we, we, we raised the stock price somewhere between 200, 300% during my tenure at, at B of A when Bill and Walter wanted me to do it. I said, well, you know, it could have been luck the first time around. Uh, let's see if I can do this again. <laughs> so, <laughs> So that's a little bit that came from it. I love that. Inspired by Example is also brought to you by Next Frontier Capital, investing in the future of the Rocky Mountain region, partnering with mission-driven entrepreneurs to build Rocky Mountain technology companies of impact, utility, and value. Learn more at nextfrontiercapital.com. Chapter four, values. Well, speaking about culture, and we totally agree with you on the culture side of it, a lot of that comes from values. And uh, yeah. what are some of the values and core principles that you rely on to guide your life decisions and, and, the, and the kind of businesses and organizations you like to work with? I like to work with people that have positive energy. I think if you're going to do a job, you may or may not like that job, but why not try to do it in the most positive, best way you can? 
I like people who make an impassioned pitch for why they believe a certain a certain thing, but also tell me what they don't know, mm. because you know nothing's ever a hundred percent right. So I like people that you can engage in a way and say, yeah, well that could be true, but when you think about this, obviously honest, trusted, principled people, that's the kind of people I'd like I like to work with. And I and then I guess finally, when I'm with a team of people, if I have a team of people. I like a, a group of people who are maturely aggressive with each other, who are diversified in any criteria you want to think about. And I think that team will have a better batting average. Chapter five, passions. You're someone who is passionate and you, you've had uh, incredible success professionally, but also you've had a lot of passions and hobbies that you pursued in your life that have shaped your personal development outside of work. And would you share some of those with us now? Happy to. You probably can guess what, what some of those are. <laughs> One is, uh, I, I, people say, aren't you ever going to retire? And I say, well, I, I'm not going to retire. No, I'm, I'm never going to retire, but I am going to do things I want to do. And some of that is still investing and being involved with companies. Um, still involved with some of the Warburg companies. I still invest uh, side by side with our team in India. I really like it. And it's a country that's got some issues with uh, religion and politics, but it's a vast demographic wanting to be middle class. It's a wonderful place to invest if you have the right local team there. Um, one of the real passions for me is during the pandemic, I, I'd always wanted to do something in Montana to add back to the community. Some of the guys on the ranch uh, like to uh, repair old farm equipment in the winter and make it look like new John Deere equipment. For a while, uh, I had noticed that vocational skills were kind of in short supply, but um, I thought maybe we'd do something there, an after-school program, but it never seemed a big enough idea to me. And then um, I was at Carnegie Mellon, and there's a next manufacturing initiative going on there, all related to additive manufacturing versus subtractive manufacturing, where you th make things micro layer by micro layer. And that was my big, big idea. I said, if I could create a business that gives people both subtractive technologies and new technologies, subtractive being mills or lays, new being lasers using uh, to, build, to build things micro layer by micro layer. I thought if I could create a business and give somebody those skills, they'd be employable anywhere. And so we started this precision machine shop. We did some work on it. I think we had some foresight, but I can't say it was all foresight. Met a young entrepreneur. It's kind of private philanthropy, private entrepreneurship. The young entrepreneur would buy this business for me at some time. Turns out many of these businesses have been hollowed out in the United States. We have no trouble getting people. We have a lot of trouble getting the right technical talent. So we're pretty, pretty much focused on building it ourselves. I'm backing a great young entrepreneur, West Toscano, where we're uh, in our third year, we're making more, you know, we're, if uh, we can keep up the annual run rates of current revenue, we're probably net margin positive. And I, I feel really good about that. I think, I think we've got 10 or 11 people, the, the uh, highest earning people make uh, a really very good salary with benefits and 401k matching and here. And uh, I feel good about what we're doing in this little town. So I got a lot of passion for that. I don't know a hell of a lot about, uh, precision machining, but I kind of feel like I'm the, I'm the, uh, you know, I'm the spirit of the place. So uh, I walk through it when we're closed and I've never done a business from scratch. 
I walked through it when we're closed for the day. And I said, man, I did this. You know, it was an empty lot. We built a building. We got this business going. So a lot of passion there. I've been there quite a few times myself. And I just want to say, you know, for Big Timber Montana to have machine shop of that quality is uh, is a great example of what's possible in rural communities. But the other thing too is, David, is that you you, you were early, this is pre-COVID, and, and recognizing the, the dependency America has on uh, extended supply chains and the turnaround times, the availability of parts, and and to help lead the way for how American manufacturing can come back to the fore and what types of manufacturing where we can compete and be differentiated versus the large-scale producers. Uh, I think it's fascinating what you guys have done. I feel pretty good about what we're doing. The other, the other I guess the main point I'd make to you about passions is, um, I've come around to this recently, um, you know, lots on the news, lots in politics to be totally down about, totally pessimistic about. And, and for me at this point in my life, and as I say, I'm not stopping working, I'm trying to say, how do I make a positive impact? You know, the, what we hear about every day in the news is, is uh, disheartening some days. But I'm trying to say, at this point in my life, I want to do positive things. I want to have a positive impact on people. And that, that really is my passion. Well, David, you've been an amazing guest. Uh, great stories and lessons and things that we can all uh, take away and put into our own life practice. So really appreciate you making time. When Will and I decided to start this podcast, it was really about having conversations with remarkable leaders to try to distill some commonalities, some themes in good, successful leadership. Listening to you today, I was reflecting on the fact that there are themes emerging from these conversations. Enthusiasm for people. Seeking what's right in people rather than what's wrong in them. Seeking to make a positive impact. Generosity. Courage patience, creating a resilient and purposeful culture. I love what you said, David, about having faith in knowing that in times of uncertainty, when pushed to the edge, you'll either find your footing or you'll learn to fly. And in terms of values, seeking people that have positive energy, people who are brave enough to make an impassioned pitch for something, but acknowledging what they don't know and having team members who maturely challenge each other. David, thank you for being a guest today on Inspired by Example. Uh, it's a real pleasure to, to have a serious conversation about these important topics, and I really appreciate you, t- you taking the time to do it. Rich, nice to meet you. Great to meet you. You've been listening to Inspired by Example conversations on leadership and inspiration brought to you by inspire hq and next frontier capital join us next time for another episode of inspired by example